Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name is Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Dr. Kayla Singleton, a developmental neuroscientist currently completing her postdoctoral training at Emory University. Interested in understanding how the brain forms in normal and pathological conditions, she's currently investigating mitochondria integrity and localization in Menke's disease, a rare neurodegenerate disorder that affects the development of children. She's a Black Samoan and queer woman, grew up in Grayson, Georgia, got her Bachelor of Science from Agnes Scott College, majoring in neuroscience and classical history and culture and got her PhD in neuroscience from Georgetown University. Currently, she's also an adjunct professor at Agnes Scott College, a Burroughs Welcome Fund postdoctoral enrichment fellow, as well as co-founder and president-elect of Black & Neuro. We talk about her current work on Menke's disease, her motivation to understand what makes a person a person, her passion for science accessibility, but also her search for a community within neuroscience and the importance of sharing with others in academia, not only when things are rough, but also when things are working out. Kayla Singleton, welcome to Tidbits of Research. You're a developmental neuroscientist. What does that mean? And how does that differ from other types of neuroscientists? Yeah, so... I think really to be a developmental neuroscientist, you can take like two sort of definitions about it. One is like a very basic definition. So I'm a neuroscientist that's interested in development, how the nervous system forms. I think in a classroom setting, another way that developmental neuroscientists are defined as being really sort of quirky and odd people that like love metaphors and things (laughs) that thinking about brain development in a way that is really unexpected for people. Um, But for me, it really is that like, my training is in understanding how the nervous system forms and a lot of the sort of basic biology principles that we use to uncover that. I want to spend a little more time on the second definition because it's amazing. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more. Why would you so would you say that that is a definition that developmental neuroscientists give themselves or other kind of people tend to believe? I think it's a definition that I have noticed in all of like classes taught by other developmental neuroscientists. Um, And I will say a lot of people, a lot of like more senior people that study neurodevelopment call themselves developmental biologists, actually, because they study, they're interested in like embryology. So how the whole organism forms, not just the brain. So I think developmental neuroscientist is kind of a new term, but I also have like yet to take a class with a professor where we're talking about neurodevelopment and they don't say something like wild or just something out of pocket. So for example, uh, one of my professors in grad school, Dr. Tom Cote, he taught us gastrulation, which is basically where you get the three germ layers in the embryo. And he, in his lecture, was like, gastrulation is the most important time in your life. It's the most important thing you'll ever do and ever go through. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> as a person? That's what we're going with? But It's a very strong statement. Right? And he said it with such confidence that everybody was like, okay, so that's going to be on the test. <laughs> but I think part of it, too, is just that a lot of people that study development are really into, like, metaphors or thinking about the brain in a very creative way because learning how something forms in and of itself is, like, a really unique topic and subject. So... I fancy myself that way and like I really enjoy metaphors. Uh, that's how I explain my research. That's how I try to explain stuff in class too. I don't generally make 
very aggressive statements about gastrulation, but it is a fun fact that I bring up a lot. So I guess this brings me to the next question, but what are the kinds of questions you're interested in answering? And please fill this with as many metaphors as you'd like. Yeah. So I'm really interested in understanding how the brain forms in normal and pathological conditions. So that's like normal development, but also during disease states. And so to do that, I study a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders. And I have done that like throughout my career. And one of the reasons that I'm interested in it is because I'm interested in this big sort of philosophical idea of what makes a person a person. What are the experiences that contribute to a person or a cell's growth over time? How can we ensure that the right cell or person ends up in the right place? And so a big thing that I talk about like on panels and stuff is this idea that for me, the development of a single neuron is really similar to the development of a scientist, where you have these intrinsic and extrinsic factors that are coming together to create a unique individual. And so on a cellular level, what that looks like is you have intrinsic factors like DNA, epigenetic changes, but you also have extracellular fa or extrinsic factors like um, contact-mediated cell changes or the cell's environment. And that's what gives us the diversity that we see in the nervous system. So that's what separates a cortical neuron from a thalamic neuron or a hippocampal neuron. And I see it with people as well, right? My intrinsic identity as a black Samoan queer developmental neuroscientist or black Samoan queer woman, plus my decisions to like attend an all women's college or go to graduate school have made me into the unique person that I am. And so I'm interested in using that facet and that idea to ask questions about how do neurons develop, but also how can we help students and trainees develop into the people that they want to be, whatever that is. And so right now, my research is really focused on the role of mitochondria integrity within the cell and how mitochondria move during development and the role that they play in metabolism in specific disorders. So it, it seems that the way you think about or approach research has really affected your teaching and mentoring philosophy. Yeah, definitely. Tell us more about that perspective or like what that means for you in terms of actual teaching or actual mentoring. Yeah, I think what it means in a global sense for me is that I, I want science to be accessible for people. I want people to be able to figure out what they like or what they don't like in a given class, in a given setting, about a given topic, right? So I, I'm an adjunct professor at Agnes Scott College, which is my alma mater, and students have to take like they do anywhere, but like a variety of courses in biology. And one of the classes that I teach is like foundations in neuroscience. And some people are really into it and like really enjoy it. But other people are like, I'm here to fulfill this gen ed requirement and that's it. And so for me, being a professor is about sharing knowledge, but also helping your students achieve whatever their goals are. And so one of the big things that I do on like the first day of class on like syllabus day is I introduce myself to my students and we talk about the way that I teach and what my goals are. And then I ask them to share what their goals are because they're all going to have different things that they want to do. And they, those can be like big goals or small goals. Like I just want to pass this class or like I want to be a doctor. But I think having those kinds of conversations allows them to realize how much power they have as students in a classroom and really dictate what dictate the way that I teach and the way that I bring information to them. And I think that that's important for their overall life skills, not just like what happens at the end of the semester. Having them feel like they have some stakes in the game, right? Yeah. So I grew up 
in like Grayson, Georgia, which is like a small suburb of Atlanta. Um, and I was raised by like very Southern parents and in that sort of like misogyny feeling of like little girls are meant to be seen and not heard, like pretty is as pretty does. So it took me until I was like 27 to really learn to use my voice and understand the power that I had just as a person, like when I walk into a room. And so I think one of the things that happens a lot in academia is we don't, nobody teaches your students that. So it's like something that you have to figure out along the way. And it's a really important, powerful lesson for your life. Um, and I also think because of the demographic and the way that science is in general, it's an exceptionally important lesson for you to learn the way that people perceive you, the power that you have and what you can do with that dynamic in that relationship and how you can use it to your advantage and how it can also sometimes screw you over. On a maybe personal level, I'm also starting teaching at my alma mater oh, cool. right now, which is also a women's college. Oh, that's so exciting. So how does it feel to like be back at your alma mater to teach? It's like overwhelming and it's like I could get really emotional about it if I wanted. Um, it's overwhelming because when I decided to go to graduate school, which was a really naive decision on my part, um, worked out though, so it's fine. <laughs> I dreamed like when I was an undergrad applying for grad school, my dream was to go back and teach at Agnes. Like that was my dream because of the environment and the culture that it like gave to me um, and all of the strength and things like that, that it provided. And so to be able to do that and to like talk to these students about their goals and what they do and for them to see not to sound like super hubris, but for them to see me and all of my success and, you know, the things that I have done, like in front of them is, I think, really powerful. And it makes me feel exceptionally good. And it also reinforces like the dynamics of what success looks like in those small classroom environments, right? Like I, there's no way I would have thrived the way that I, that I would have thrived had it not been for Agnes and the community there and the professors there. And so my goal really is to give back to them and to do that for them because it was done for me. That resonates so much. I can't really. <laughs> so it's it's kind of amazing. What was, I mean, you've already mentioned a few yeah. things, but what, what did you like most about Agnes Scott? I think the thing that I liked the most about Agnes was that it it really radicalized me as a person and it challenged me to believe in myself more to like know my potential and it encouraged me to do things and accomplish things that I had never even fathomed were options or possible. I was a double major in neuroscience and classical history and culture which was really great and those two like the classics department and the biology department were really integral parts to like my success there, the way that like professors encouraged me and supported me, the way that they just challenged my sort of like philosophical ideas about what race is, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a woman who does science. It was like a world of opportunity and everybody was so into having these really deep philosophical conversations that I don't think you get, uh, I don't, in my experience, you do not get them at like co-ed campuses. Mm. And so it felt like a really safe space to learn so many things about myself, but also about my community. And it was actually kind of hard to leave Agnes and go to Georgetown where I did grad school because it was a co-ed like space, but it also was like a predominantly white institution. 
and that was a shift. So Agnes is in, it's a minority serving institution. So it was difficult to go to Georgetown and sort of leave that bubble of people who do want to sort of like overthink and overanalyze social constructs and ideologies and how they play a role into everything to go to a place where people are like, what are you talking about? Like, why would I ever have thought about that? Right. But I think it's really valuable. And it's also valuable as a scientist to get various different perspectives on what's going on and how you do things like even interpret data. And so that was probably that like 10 out of 10 was my favorite part, just that community and that culture. I really like that you double majored in two seemingly incredibly different (laughs) fields. Yeah. What kind of brought them together? How did you decide on these two? So when I was applying to college, I knew that I wanted to study the brain, that I wanted to major in neuroscience. And at the time, this was like 2010, there actually weren't that many schools that had like neuroscience majors for real, for real. They had like biopsych and things like that. And I was being really picky. And I was like, no, I wanted to say neuroscience. And I also realized that I needed to take a foreign language just as a person. And I had been in Spanish classes from the second grade until the 12th grade, like a senior in high school. And I still to this day cannot speak a lick of Spanish. And I was like, I can't do it again. Like, I, I, I'm bad at it. It's painful. Like everything about it just like, gives me secondhand embarrassment anyway so we had like one of those like days where they like all the different departments like set up in little booths and you like go talk to them and i met this professor dr sally McEwen, and she was like oh well if you need a foreign language you can take like ancient greek and i was like i've never heard about that like i didn't know that was an option and so again out of naivety i was like yeah let's do that that'll be my foreign language and then i won't have to worry about failing at spanish again and while I was taking those ancient Greek classes, I really enjoyed it. Like, it was so much fun. I loved that class. It was, like, me and two other women at the college. So our class was only four people, including our professor, which was awesome. And then eventually, I just started taking more courses and classics in general because it was interesting to me. I really loved mythology and reading about the plays and understanding the language and how everything really evolved from that. Um, And then... I like met with my advisor at some point and they were like, you know, if you just like take a couple more classes, you could just like add this on. And I was like, oh, okay, well then I'll do that. So that's really how it happened. It was really serendipitous. And I do remember there was like one day my like first year that like learning the language got really complicated. And I was like, there's really no going back after this. Like it's the ad drop period is over. I do. I am stuck here learning ancient Greek. Um, But it was really... I love that experience at Agnes as well, like having those two seemingly unrelated majors come together was really great. And it's like a fun party trick. And like, I still translate Latin and Greek texts now, like in my house all the time. So you said that when you were deciding where to go to college, you kind of were already decided on neuroscience and just working on the brain. Do you remember how your interest in neuroscience got sparked? Yes. So I was in the seventh grade and we had this like science outreach day and we got to like dissect all of these different like animal brains, like sheep brains and cow brains. Um, And I just thought it was so cool. It was the coolest thing I had ever done in school. And we had like a whole module on the brain. And I just really loved thinking about it, that like this squishy thing, like made us all who we were. Um, And so at like the ripe old age of 12, I was like, I'm going to study the brain when I get older. Uh, And everybody in my life like kind of (laughs) laughed. They did for like good reason, though. Like 
I always did well in school because that was expected of me by my family. Um, but I didn't like or care about science at all. Like I was in it for the ride. The only things I really enjoyed in school were like reading books and talking about literature. Um, so everybody was super surprised. They were very supportive, but they were very, very surprised that I was like, I'm going to go major in neuroscience. But I made that decision in the seventh grade and I s- stuck with it. That is so impressive. <laughs> when you didn't know much about what it means and then you're kind of like yeah. keeping at it. Yeah. And I, I tried to take more science classes in high school, like AP Bio or AP Chem, so that I could like try and know more or like be more science oriented. But I really didn't like those classes. Like I really did just want to learn about the brain. And like eventually I'd take those classes in college. So that was fine. But I excelled in any lecture or module we ever had where it was just like neurofocused. Getting back to more neuroscience things. <laughs> I got a little sidetracked. <laughs> oh no, you're fine. Yeah. What are some tools or processes that neuroscientists use to answer research questions? There are all kinds. It really depends on the research. So my my postdoc lab focuses a lot on using sort of like mass spec and big data. So essentially taking the cells from a given brain region and then like lysing them down to the proteins and then running that through this giant, very old gray machine. And it's essentially what it does is it gives you a readout of all of the different proteins that are upregulated or downregulated in a given brain or sample size. And so a lot of the times what we do is we will take like mutant mice uh, and control mice and compare them to see what proteins are upregulated. There are other labs that are sort of less biochemistry heavy. Um, one of my really good friends, uh, Dr. Daniel Gonzalez, he's a neuroengineer. Um, he's actually a physicist by like training. Um, and he designs probes that allow you to record from different cells in the brain, which is really cool. Um, I have another friend, Dr. Ubada Savag. He looks more at visual networks and circuits. And so he's really interested in the thalamus and the way that the ventral lateral geniculate nucleus um, gets processed um, and made during development by looking at individual cell types. So he does a lot of like labeling cells with antibodies um, and within situ over time to sort of see how circuits build. Huge variety. Yeah. So I read that your research right now is on the Menkes disease. How do I say it? Yeah, that's how you say it, Menkes. Menkes. Are you working with like mouse models for these things or are you working... And maybe first, maybe I should backtrack. Tell us a little bit about the disease, (laughs) like what we know about it, what we don't, and then get to the models, maybe. Yeah, so Menkes disease is a rare neurogenetic disorder that affects the nervous system of children. And it's characterized by a dysregulation of copper throughout the body. And what that looks like in the brain specifically is copper depletion. Um, So a lack of copper in your brain, which is actually really important for a variety of like basic neuronal functions, things like neurotransmitter synthesis, um, reactions to stress, um, mitochondrial integrity and content as well. And so in patients with Menkes disease, they generally have intellectual disability, they'll go through seizures, they generally don't survive past the age of five, and they have a lot of neurodegeneration and microencephaly um, that occurs. And you see a lot of that atrophy in the cerebellum, but also in the cortex a little bit as well. And so as a disease, it's classified as rare, but one of the big things that our lab focuses on is trying to under, trying to use Menkes disease as a model to understand how metals affect development and their role in protecting the cell, but also becoming toxic. So like one of the big questions that 
I always say in like grants and stuff is like my project focuses on how the brain protects itself, but also is susceptible to copper as a micronutrient. And so to study that, we use a variety of different models in the lab. We use cell culture. Um, so we'll genetically engineer cells that have the Menkes phenotype. We'll use fruit flies. We'll use mice. Um, and we'll also use patient samples if they're available. So we try to take a sort of big global approach. You can separate things into neurons? Yeah, so you can differentiate. Not all, I'm probably going to butcher this and my dev bio teacher will yell at me, but you can get certain sorts of cells called generally like neural or called stem cells. And so you can take those stem cells and differentiate them into different types of cells based on like the sort of conditions that you treat them and grow them in. So like whatever you add to the media will allow them to become like sort of neural progenitors. And over time, they'll become immature neurons and then they'll eventually become mature neurons and you can do your assays at really any time. But yeah, so you can like take stem cells and make them almost anything. I will say it's like a very hard process um, because you run the risk of like contamination at like every stage. So like one of the big things when we work with intermediate progenitor cells, which are just like cells that are dividing a lot in the early stages of brain development. Basically, every time you do anything with the plate of cells, you also have to like freeze down the cells just in case they die or just in case they get contaminated. So it's a very long process, but it can be really valuable. What kind of things has research helped us with in terms of like the Menkes disease? There's actually a new FDA study right now, or like a, a clinical trial that is sponsored by the FDA. Um, using alescomol as a treatment for Menkes disease to essentially like prolong life for the tiny humans. And essentially what it does is it supplies copper to the body. I should back up. So in Menkes disease, copper is depleted from the brain, but you actually have like an excess of copper in your gut. It is very complicated. Um, and so what the alescomol does is it works with your gut microbes and the neurons within your gut to make sure that the proper amount of copper nutrients is being shuttled to your brain through your bloodstream and things like that. And so Alescomol is a direct offshoot kind of of the research going on in Menkes disease right now. I think it also has helped a lot with diseases similar to Menkes disease. So like Wilson's disease is a more common disease that's also associated with copper and it's defined as having too much copper in the brain as opposed to not enough. And so the studies that we do in both of those diseases really inform each other. I also think on a like a broad level, any sort of disease-based research, if like conducted and controlled correctly, can tell you a lot about like the natural homeostasis of how a cell works, right? Because essentially what you're dealing with is in our case, like a rare genetic disorder where we know the mutation that causes the disease and we know how the cells are supposed to work. So any manipulation we do can give us further insight into the pathways that go into the cell not working or working. So we're either trying to rescue the phenotypes that we see or we're like accidentally making them worse. And that leads us kind of to a whole new line of research and how we figure that out, if that makes sense. I remember you were saying that when you kind of decided to, to go to do your PhD, maybe there was some naive aspect yeah. to it. Um, but I also read that you had quite a number of undergraduate research experiences, and they seem to be in very different labs, at least in kind of like name or like field, because like one was psychology and one was biology. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that exploration process and like that decision process. Yeah. So... I went to Agnes and I knew I wanted to be a neuroscience major, so I like took all the neuroscience classes. And then there was this fellowship that you could apply for in your second year 
that would basically give you two years of research experience, like while you finish up school and it would allow you to research in like a bunch of different places and you get paid for it. And I was really excited about that, especially the paid part. Um, and so I did research at Georgia State University in physiology. I did research at Vanderbilt University, I think also in the Department of Physiology. And then I did research at Emory University, looking more at like neuroscience behavior. And I did research eventually at Agnes as well. So I, I had a lot of research experience and I would say that they were pretty authentic. Like my projects didn't always work and it was really frustrating <laughs> and it was really great. But when I was deciding to apply to graduate school, it really happened in what felt like a whim because I basically was like, someone asked me, they were like, what are you going to do after graduation? And I was like, I have no idea. Why would you bring that up? <laughs> like, um, and so I was like in a panic and I went to um, my mentor, Dr. Jennifer Lairmore at Agnes, and I was like, hey, what am I going to do after graduation? Right. <laughs> in the program that I was in, they did like, they talked to us a lot about graduate school and applying to graduate school, but I had never really thought about it. I just really enjoyed doing science and I was good at it. So it, I was like, this is fine. I'm not worried about the future. And she was like, I think that you should go to graduate school because you would be good at it. And like, you want to teach and you enjoy teaching people like at the bench and in the classroom. So I think it would be like a valuable experience for you. And so I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. That sounds 10 out of 10. Like I knew I didn't want to go to medical school. I knew I didn't want to go like to veterinary school. I also knew that I had very little idea about how to get like a real person job or even kind of what that was. Mm. So it felt like I went into it knowing a lot about like doing science, but not really knowing a lot about the culture of graduate school and like what goes on there. And so that first year of graduate school was like incredibly hard for me because I was used to being like really good at everything all of the time. And I was in this new environment and it was the first time I had ever been like away from my family, which I didn't even realize like mattered to me as a person, I won't lie. <laughs> um, it really like it just sucked and I wanted to quit like almost every single day. But I also was like, I don't know what else I would do. So I guess we're just going to push through. <laughs> Like it ended up being the right decision. And I, I think that small amount of naivety I had about like the culture of graduate school and the culture of academia really paid off for me because I, I approached all of the challenges just as a, like a way to learn about myself, but also about the process, like what not to do. I've been reading through your website and you say at some point, I'm obligated to use my voice, platform, and lived experience as a Black woman to ensure students within my community feel valued, heard, and appreciated. Was that something you had or something you feel like you lacked? So, like, I've never had a professor that looks like me ever. Like, I've never had a Black woman teacher, professor, like, ever in my life. And I was in school until, like, the 22nd grade, if you add it all up. So that's kind of wild. So it was something that I lacked and it was something that I thought really would have made the process easier. So when I was a sophomore in college, um, I went to Society for Neuroscience Conference for the first time and I met my old program officer for my grant, uh, Dr. Michelle Jones London, who is an exceptional human being. Um, but she was the first black woman I ever met that had a PhD and it was such a moving and monumental experience for me because I felt like I was really like I was I was checking all the boxes and doing all the things that I was supposed to do and I never really felt like a scientist until I saw her and we like talked and she was so nice um she's so super nice um, and we're still like close which is Aww. great as well but it really for me 
it's just so much harder to be something that you can't see if you don't have anybody that looks like you or shares similar experiences or perspectives with you. It can be really challenging to just feel like you're capable of doing something. And so that's one of the reasons that like I do panels and like interviews and talk to people so much because I want more people to realize that they can do what I do, that it's not like that wild or complicated. And for me, that experience was really lacking. I just remember how isolating it was to be like the only black woman or the only queer person in a space when I was like in graduate school or like at conferences and things like that. And how much I just like wanted a friend (laughs) and it was like challenging. And that's not to say like, I love my graduate program. It made me into the person that I am and the leader that I am. And I so value those experiences. But there are also things that were just harder that we never really talked about. And it upset me a lot. Like one of the big things, um, Georgetown was like always hiring new professors or like doing searches. And I would like go to these talks and the talks were really great. The like people presenting were great. And I remember one day I was sitting in the talk, one of the talks, and I was like, this has been like my 10th faculty seminar thing. And I have not seen even a woman present about science and graduate school programs are generally like mostly women it's like 70 at least at Georgetown it's like 70% women 30% men but all of these talks were by like white dudes which is fine like white dudes can do science too and I don't mind that but I'm just like every single person that we have interviewed over the past six years has been a white guy why can't we at least pretend to interview a diverse person I'm fine with pretending at this point just so I can see it And so it made it hard because I was like, do black women like not go into research? Like, do we, what happens to us? I talked to my program director about that because I was so frustrated. And I was like, I just want us to interview a black woman. I just think it's important. And it didn't happen before I left, but also the pandemic happened. So like, maybe that was why, but still. And it's, I think it's, it's overwhelming to think about too, right? Like, I think it's also overwhelming because like I'm from, Georgia and I grew up you know in Grayson but also in Atlanta and the amount of diversity within this city is so great like there are so many different ethnicities and people of different like identities across the spectrum and it can be really frustrating to live in a city that is like thriving and diverse and then walk into an instant like an academic institution and see none of that reflected back at you Because it really does make you question your place or like if you're doing the right thing. You're co-founder and president-elect of Black and Neuro. Yeah. And we're recording this shortly before Black and Neuro Week, which is very exciting. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Black and Neuro and about the week in particular. (laughs) Yeah. So Black and Neuro is a global slash international organization that came about last year. And the goal for us really is to build community for Black scientists or Black people who do neuro-related research um, to provide them with professional development opportunities, to give them guidance and support in a way that most of us didn't, and maybe still don't now, I don't really know, feel in academia. And so it started last year because of a tweet that our our current president, Angeline Dukes, put out where she was like, so when are we going to do Black and Neuro Week? Um, And one of my friends like tagged me in it. It's been like a grassroots trainee led initiative 
where we've put on conferences so people can share their science. We've done tons of professional development workshops, socials, and sort of any event to really build that support and community overall. And so for this up and coming Black and Neuro Week, we're trying to keep that that same energy and that same momentum by focusing on having like people from the Black and Neuro community introduce themselves and talk about their research, having us talk about racism that exists within the neuroscience community on a scientific level, um, but also like at an academic level, um, but then also highlighting the different intersections of people's identities. And so it's been exceptionally wonderful and I think bigger than any of us ever thought it would be to like be a part of this organization and have it continue to move forward and do stuff. Is there something this coming week that you're most excited by? I'm really excited for um, there. one of the days, I can't remember which day it is, um, is Black and Neuro Intersections Day, where people will talk about like their different identities and experiences and be able to really share and hopefully like find other people that resonate with them or identify as they do. I love those kinds of days. It's actually funny. I remember when we did the first Black and Neuro week, it was like halfway through the week. And I remember I was like really angry at one point because I was like, where have all of these people been? Like I've been going to Society for Neuroscience, which is like the biggest neuroscience conference for years, like eight years. And every time I would go, I would be like the only black person in any room ever. And I was like, where have y'all been? Like, where have we been hiding? What's going on? And so I was really frustrated by it. And now I'm like so excited for maybe conferences to happen again, but sort of any form of community where you can just meet and engage with new people because it's just really empowering. Where were people hiding? I think it was a mix of us like not knowing each other and kind of only sticking in our like individual circles. So like I, for example... I do not seem like it most of the time, but I am like an introverted person. So like when I go to conferences, I really am there to like go to the things that I want to see. And then I go back to my hotel room. I'm only socializing if like we know each other, like meeting strangers I'm bad at. It just, it's hard for me. COVID has made it better just because of like the internet. But in my mind, I guess we just all kind of sequestered ourselves in some space. But there also wasn't like... SFN has like the diversity social, but it's so big and there's so many people there. And it's really weird to go up to someone and be like, you're brown and I'm brown. So I guess we should talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you doing? Later? Um, and so I, I think that that was part of it. And just because there's no like in my grad program when I was there, there were three, including me, there were three black women. And we would like go to like SFN is a very big conference. It's very generalized. Um, but we would go to our like individual field related conferences and diversity decreases even more. And so I think we were all just kind of hiding, but also those experiences can be really like mentally exhausting to like be on all day um, and then try and make new friends over virtually nothing too. I read somewhere that what you say when other people are looking for a mentor or when you're looking for a mentor, but what you want is basically people to imagine Beyonce. Yeah. Why Beyonce? Yeah. This story actually happened be- slightly because of an SFN. So I shall paint the whole scene. It was like April 16th, 2018. And I had a committee meeting and I was a fifth year graduate student and I wanted it with my whole heart to be my last committee meeting because I was so over graduate school. And I, at that point was just like, someone please get me out of here. Like, I don't care what I have to do anymore. But I had that committee meeting 
And it really, it was horrible. Like I was horrible. I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. Like all of it was bad. And to like no fault of any one individual except for maybe me. Um, And so it went really poorly. But on that same day, Beyonce released her homecoming documentary, which I did not know. Like when I scheduled the exam, I did not know that. But then later I found out. So I did what I think any reasonable Beyonce fan would do. I, after like crying in a Georgetown bathroom, went home and ordered like $60 worth of Chinese food. And then I watched Homecoming like three times on repeat. And it's like two hours long. So I was up like all day or all night. And it was so much fun because it was so empowering for me. And what I realized while I was watching it and like eating spring roll and dancing was that what I needed to do to get out of graduate school was to either find a Beyonce or become her in a way that would allow me to leave. And I guess what I really mean by that is that like one of the greatest things that I think when I see Beyonce perform or do anything is that she is so exceptional because she doesn't make you want to be her, but instead the best version of yourself for you to show up in every situation with like your most authentic self, your most confident and supported self and like get things done and do the things that you want to do and you are passionate about. And so when I talk to my students about finding mentors, that's what I want for them to have. I want them to have mentors that are empowering to them that you can like idolize and kind of want to be like, but that really make you feel confident and empowered in what you're doing and give you encouragement in your identity and in who you are and in your authenticity. And so after I watched that documentary and had this like mental talk, mental pep talk with myself for a couple of days, I realized that I could do that, that like I was the thing on some level that was holding me back from really finishing, from really getting it together. And a part of it was because I didn't have, you know, this a support system that looked like me or could resonate with what I was going through. But what I did have was like five years of graduate school experience to know like what the situation was. And so I did all of that. And then at SFN that same year, I like gave a talk about like finding your scientific Beyonce and how empowering that can be and how it's really like, it can be more than one person. It's an ongoing process, but I think it's a metaphor that like really helps people. Finding a mentor is really difficult and challenging. And I think it's because one of the things that everybody sort of takes for granted or talks about all of the time is that like, this person is going to be in your life for for like five years probably or longer, right? And so that's longer than like, you know, some relationships I've had. So it can be really taxing. But when I thought about the way that my postdoc mentor, who I knew I was doing, who I was going to do my postdoc with at the time, which is probably also why I was so ready to leave graduate school. When I thought about my postdoc mentor and my mentors in undergrad, they had so much faith in me. And so much confidence in me, especially when I had like none. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with y'all, but like, I can't do any of that. And so now a big thing for me is to be that Beyonce like figure for other people to encourage them and empower them. And if I can't help them figure out what they want to do or get to where they want to go, like to find someone else that can be that for them too, but for them to have that same those same feelings that they like not just feel supported, but actually are supported and are encouraged in what they're doing. So thinking forward and like future goals, where do you see yourself going? It really sometimes depends on the day for me. There are weeks where I really am like over academia and it's just like really tiring. But I think I've always, like I said, I've always wanted to teach at a liberal arts college to 
have that sort of one-on-one engagement with students to teach them about science in the classroom and at the bench. And I also think smaller colleges appeal to me as well because you as a PI still get to do science because like PIs at big R1 universities like don't really get to do that. And so for me, if I think about like my everyday life, a thing that I want is to like be a professor in that setting to like have students in my own lab and help them you know, give them knowledge that I wish that I had before I went to graduate school and sort of like watch their dreams come true. I think that's really powerful. I think there are other times, though, on a more grandiose scale where I think about the structures and all of the things that play in academia. And I don't really know, aside from like, I guess, becoming a dean, even though I still don't really know what deans do. <laughs> like, I want I want to continue to be able to have those conversations with deans and people in like higher positions of power to address like the cultural changes that we need in academia and how a lot of the problems or a lot of the solutions that we have for these sort of systemic problems don't work. But I think I can do both of those things at once in some degree. But I don't know. I I am the happiest I've ever been in my life. And also as a scientist right now, like being a postdoc in the Fonda's lab, being a part of Black and Neuro, like having my friends and my family so close to me, it is really surreal feeling to have essentially like all of your dreams come true and then realize that there is like still so much more that you can do and so I'm really trying to enjoy that space and envision or imagine a future for myself in a career or a job that maybe doesn't exist or like a thing that I make up that really gives me complete happiness but I do think it's important I feel like a lot of times in science we don't talk about like when we're happy Um, so it is always important for me to tell people that like I'm exceptionally happy like I couldn't be any happier and a lot of that I had to learn a lot of really hard lessons along the way um, and go through a lot of crappy things but like I did it (laughs) Kayla thank you so much this has been so inspiring and so much fun and thank you for sharing so much of your journey yeah of course this is awesome (laughs) yay I'm glad As a fellow women's college graduate, this chat was very valuable to me. So many things really resonated, like how going to Agnes Scott College challenged Kayla to believe in herself more, or how it gave her a safe space to learn. Learning is such a challenging endeavor. You really have to be vulnerable, put yourself out there, and lead with curiosity and openness. And it's so important for people to have a space where they feel challenged and supported, but all the while safe. That's something we should all work on and train for others, especially considering the world we live in today. Our music is Float and Fly by Gold Gartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.